Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people. Father, we just pray that you would empower Chris to deliver your word with clarity and that we would have a proper understanding of it. May we be enriched by your word, Lord. May we encourage one another and fulfill the one another's as we learn from you through the books or through the book of Acts, Lord. Lord, we just pray and thank you, Lord, that we can hear from you, that we would not only hear from you, but, Lord, we would know how to carry out these acts, Lord. Father, we thank you. Lord, we just pray for Pastor Emilio as he delivers your word that we would learn from you. Father, thank you. Humble us. May as we have an understanding of your word, may we not be puffed up with pride, but may it serve as a token of humility to us. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, good to see everybody. Um, don't let the front row scare you. Um, uh, so yes, we're in Acts chapter 6 today. And uh, last week we really did a very good job of actually covering some ground. Last week we actually got um, all the way, we covered three chapters, Acts 3, 4, and 5 last week, um, which was very impressive. Um, Acts chapter 3 we saw yet another sermon by the Apostle Peter. We saw um, Peter preach his second sermon where he just preached Christ. He preached the necessity of, of faith in Christ. And, um, and we saw him do it with great boldness. We saw that the reason he was able to um, gather this crowd was due to the healing of a crippled man that he performed. He performed a miraculous healing and the crowds gathered and he preached Christ. Um, in chapters 4 and 5, we saw a couple, uh, really a couple of different things going on. Um, we saw the apostles, Peter and John, get thrown in jail multiple times, um, both of which, again, opened up the opportunity for them to preach Christ to the, to the council, to the Jewish leaders. Um, it's going to just get to be a really repetitive um, scene of the apostles, disciples, preaching Christ in every circumstance, whether persecution or, or not. And it's always, as we'll see, with great boldness. Um, in chapter 5, we saw, we saw the judgment of God being poured out on a couple in the New, in the, in the New Testament church there um, due to a, a, a pre, premeditated lying to the Holy Spirit with Ananias and Sapphira. God killed them upon lying um, about their, their giving to the church, and God poured out his judgment on them. And we talked about how that was really just displaying, us, uh, displaying for us God's desire for his people and for his church to be holy. That's what God wants. He wants us to be holy and sin. I mean, a lot of people have a skewed view of the new covenant um, of grace. They, well, you know, may we sin so that grace may abound type of mindset. But God, from the very beginning, even in the early church, was setting the ground to say that, no, sin is not a joke. It's not a laughing matter. It's nothing to take lightly. Um, people were actually... Um, brought to death as a result of what we might consider a small white lie. Um, so up to this point in Acts, um, up through chapter 6, we've really seen uh, what appears to be a great unity amongst the early church. Um, they're, they're maintaining this unity amongst uh, rapid growth. The church is just expanding by the thousands. Um, unity is being maintained through persecution. And uh, unity is... Um, also being maintained uh, despite this, this divinely implemented church discipline. The church is, is, is continued to build and to grow despite all of these things. But now what we have in chapter 6 is um, the honesty, which is the word of God, um, which is going to go on to show us, be very honestly showing us a little problem that arose in the church. Um, of course, God is going to um, work this out for the church's good and for his purposes. Uh, but now in chapter 6 we have here, and let's begin to read maybe the first four verses. We're going to see a problem arising in the church. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. Now the Hellenistic Jews, just to define that for you real quickly, the Hellenistic Jews are the Greek-speaking 
Jewish Christians. At this point, all of the church is Jewish. These are the Jews who were, um, had been dispersed abroad and only spoke Greek, or primarily Greek. Um, a complaint arose by them against the native Hebrews, meaning that the Greek-speaking Christians are now complaining uh, against the Hebrew-speaking Christians. And here's the reason, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Yeah, chapter 6, um, for everybody who just got here. Okay, so notice first, the first thing I wanted to point out is that uh, we may have had a concept of our mind of the, just the, the beauty of the early church, which it was, but here we see that the, the early church was not perfect. They were full of the Holy Spirit, it says, in many instances, but they were not sinlessly perfected. The church is still having issues. Um, despite, despite the great unity, there's still issues, just like every church does. Every church has issues, and so did the early church. Um, and the issue here in chapter 6 is there was obviously an apparent um, inequality between the, the food and the help being given to the widows, uh, between the Greek-speaking and the, and the Hebrew-speaking Christians. Um, Luke doesn't tell us exactly um, the root or the exact cause of why this was happening. Um, some of the commentators um, think it could have just been simply the language barrier. You know, if these, if these Greek primarily Greek-speaking Christians don't speak Hebrew, they can't relate their issues, their needs, there could have been a disruption there, or it could have likewise been a, a, less, a less than morally neutral issue of the, the Hebrew Christians showing favoritism. You know, they could have thought, you know, we're, we're the real Christians, we're the real root of this religion, we, we speak Hebrew, and that could have likewise um, led to this. We're not told, um, so we can only speculate, but to address this problem, um, the text tells us that the twelve, when it says the twelve, it's referring to the apostles, they summoned the entire church together. And they called for the church to bring forward seven godly men. Put forward seven godly men, they say, who can, who can serve the church and manage um, this issue, manage the distribution of food, which would have probably included not specifically only food, could have included money as well. Uh, but they needed godly men to do this. And so we kind of see here, as the apostles are having to set up this, um, this group of men for this work, um, what we're really getting to see is a very primitive view, and, a very, uh, and we get to see the necessity of the officer role of the deacon. That's really what we're kind of getting to see, I think, is, is how this developed. It developed really out of a need, and the need is for somebody to do some work and to put in some time to manage to manage some things. Uh, what I thought was interesting is how we get to see the involvement of the church. The apostles called the church to put forward seven godly men, um, just to see the involvement of the, the, the believers. But I think what's most important here and why um, Luke includes all this is all this was being done for a very specific reason. And the reason we read was in verse 2. The apostle said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And so I thought the very first thing I'd point out, which is, is a very natural way to, I think, look at this, I want to say what the apostles are not saying. The apostles are not saying that feeding of widows is unimportant, that it's uh, just a, a menial task that just, you know, they're too good for. That's not at all what they're saying. If you even read the description of, of who the apostles um, require for this task, what does it say? They must be of good reputation, um, faithful, full of the Holy Spirit. Um, these are not things that you would mandate uh, for people who's just doing an unimportant um, task. Um, so this was a necessity. The necessity um, of feeding the widows is necessary in that church just as it is ours to take care of those who cannot be taken care of. Um, but what the, the apostles were saying was that this was simply not um, a job for them. The apostles had their own distinct, um, equally as important calling. And they tell us what it is. They say their calling by God is to the ministry of the word and to prayer. 
the apostles to read it fully devoted to these things, the word of God and to prayer. And so I think this is helpful for us just to think of, when you think of the body of Christ, we see how everyone is called to different roles. You know, when we do church membership meetings, we always read through Ephesians chapter 4, just showing everyone how um, the church is supposed to, to work together. The, the, the Bible describes it as a body. It functions together. Um, 1 Corinthians talks about how uh, um, no part is more or less important um, than the other, meaning that the job of the housewife in shepherding her family, raising her kids, teaching them the word of God and the gospel, is not any less important than what Pastor Emilio does when he preaches the word. We're, we're a body. We each function. We each have our own parts. Um, some may um, think of themselves as the foot. Some may be the mouth. But they're all necessary. The foot is necessary. How can the mouth go preach somewhere if there's not a foot to take it there? You know, would be an illustration of just you have, you have to have the whole body. And so, uh, and so this is the instance that we have here, um, what's going on. So the church puts forward the seven men. The apostles have a, a function in who they are because they approve them. Uh, verse 6 says that they approve the men, they pray for them, they lay their hands on them, and then this is the way that they really give them this official office. Um, they give them this ordination and responsibility by the laying on of hands and of prayer. And so the list of the seven men um, Luke gives to us in our verse 5. But let's just note, just note in your mind, just the first two. Because these are the only, only the first two are we even going to see again in the book of Acts. The first two in the list there are Stephen and Philip. And uh, just to note, Stephen and Philip, we're going to see them very soon in the book of Acts um, doing more than working tables. We're going to see them doing more than, than simply working tables. And the very first example of this, case in point, is Stephen himself. Stephen, in verse 8, let's read of, of this newly ordained uh, proto-deacon Stephen and see, and see what he's up to. In verse 8 it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly in, in, uh, induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses and said, This man incessantly speaks. Now just note, I'm going to repeat this several times. Note what they're accusing Stephen of. They've already said he, they're accusing him of blasphemous words against Moses and, and God. But now they say, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place, uh, referring to the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And so what a scene Luke paints for us here. Stephen um, is working signs and wonders amongst the people. And... Uh, just as Peter always does when he performs the signs and miracles, he never stops there. He always goes on to present why it is he has the power to do this. He would say, this is not even my power. This is Christ by in his name. Um, so he would have been preaching the gospel, preaching um, Christ as he performed all these miracles. And at some point, he obviously came into contact with his teaching and his preaching with this synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. The Synagogue of the Freedmen is just simply a synagogue basically dedicated to to men who would have been ex-slaves. They're freed from slavery, probably Roman slavery. And so they meet together, they worship um, together in the synagogue. And so they came into contact with Stephen's teachings, and they, they bring him before the council. When it says council, it's literally the Sanhedrin. I've tried to use that word as much as I can just to familiarize yourself with the Sanhedrin. It's just a group of, of the Jewish leadership. And uh, they, it says they drag him before the Sanhedrin, and they accuse him of these things. We, we saw, uh, was it verse 10, 
blasphemy against Moses and God. Funny, funny that they use Moses for blasphemy Moses uh, before God. Then they say he incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. And then they say they've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs. Um, it's also interesting that Luke says that um, Luke says that they're bringing forth false witnesses. Now, when you hear, and as we're going to see, the things that um, they're accusing him of, it's interesting because the things that they're accusing him of is not going to be far off from what he was actually saying. Um, they're considered false because maybe some of these people really didn't even hear these statements. Maybe they were told to bring up these accusations. They're called false witnesses. But as we're going to see, um, the things he was speaking against um, and the things he would have been saying were not far off and would not, to their ears, um, been untrue as far as what he was saying. And so all the aspects of the, the new covenant um, would seem blasphemous to, to an unbelieving Jew under the old covenant. That's what we're going to see. They, they would have considered these things blasphemous. And so I thought maybe this would be a good point to, to kind of open it up and to open it up in this way is, is as you try to imagine Stephen going out and, and healing and, and preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, preaching all the aspects of this new covenant that the Lord has, has initiated with his death and with the Lord's Supper, he says, you know, this is how he's initiating the new covenant and really starting it. What are some of the things you could think of that, these men, the apostles, the disciples, the early church, what things would they have been teaching, preaching, and uh, trying to convince people of that the unbelieving Jews would have found blasphemous? And just try to, maybe it'll help you to think of what are the things they're accusing him of. They're hearing him speak blasphemy against Moses, against God. Uh, they, they, they think he's speaking blasphemy against the holy place and the law. These types of things. What what, what, what aspects of his preaching do you think he would have been saying? Okay. What would he have been saying that these people would have heard as blasphemy? Yes, sir. I'm just thinking of one of them in which Jesus tells the Pharisees, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. We're hearing um, yeah. 14, he says, he will destroy this place. Well, obviously, they didn't want the temple destroyed. Yes. Yeah. But uh, they're not reflecting what the true temple was about. Exactly basically a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching. Um, even, yeah, even when Jesus says that, as John 2, right, he says, I'm going to destroy this temple, raise it up in three days. He, even there, John includes that he was actually talking about his body, basically a prophecy of the resurrection. Um, yeah, I think on that aspect, maybe just on the aspect of the temple, uh, we see uh, the author of Hebrews explaining the same truth. Um, he's setting, he's setting the, the sacrifices made in the temple against the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and talking about how all these repetitive sacrifices, are, they couldn't forgive sins anyway. They're done. The once and for all sacrifice of Christ, now that's, that's what you need, Jews. And so I think that's what, to them, would have been blasphemous. You know, the sacrifices that they were putting their trust and faith in, um, that the apostles would have been teaching, no, you need the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, probably just the fact that they're proclaiming that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, mm -hmm. whereas the Jews, you know, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they're thinking probably a military conqueror, and clearly Jesus wasn't that. So yeah. the fact that they're claiming that he was the Messiah would have been probably blasphemous. Yeah. yeah, that would have been a, maybe the part of the, their accusation of a blasphemy against God. I think they were probably even preaching a, 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 a Messiah who was divine. They're preaching Christ, the Messiah, who's divine, the, the, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, you know, the divine Son of Man, and they would have heard that as being a, the Trinity. That's a blasphemy, you know, Son of God, that's blasphemy. I think so, yeah. yeah, all, yeah all, 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 everything that uh, pretty much um, Jesus is saying, uh, you know, they hear it all over again through, through uh, Stephen, mm -hmm. you know, and they still blind. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, they're still saying that he's blasphemy, you know, just as Jesus. It is. Yeah. And that's that's what that's what hits me too. Is what's funny is that this Sanhedrin, this group that Peter and John have come before numerous times, now Stephen's before. This is the exact same group that Jesus just months before 
stood before, you know, and gave the same message, you know, same all through Jesus' ministry, same thing. I thought maybe the big one would be, uh, it would have been their teaching of justification by faith apart from works of the law. To the Jew, that would have been, I mean, that was their righteousness. That was their uh, means of, of becoming justified before God was the law, keeping of the law. And so when they're preaching, you're justified by faith in Christ alone. Um, you see how Paul deals with that in the book of Galatians, you know I mean? It's, it's, it's a serious um, error that they would have, uh, would have been willing to die for, really. I mean, that was, that was their interpretation of the Old Covenant, was that you're justified by works of the law, and they would have been preaching Christ. You're justified by the righteousness of Christ, not your righteousness. You must trust only in Christ. So, yeah, that's good. So, I say all of that, and I'm really just kind of trying to prime the pump for you um, as we now turn to chapter 7, because what we have in chapter 7 is the response of Stephen to these accusations by the council and by all these false witnesses, and he's going to defend his theology, he's going to defend his teaching, his preaching. Um, what's interesting about this, if you just look, chapter 7, how many verses is it? 60 verses. The first 53 are this response, is this basically sermon of Stephen, which is amazing that a deacon gets the, the biggest sermon in the book of Acts. You know? But uh, that, that was interesting to me. You know, it's not a sermon of the, the, uh, the apostles or any of the disciples. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not John. But Stephen, um, actually Luke devotes the most text to, his, to this sermon. I mean, it's really amazing. And, and the reason I did all the prep work and had us trying to think about what his accusations were and what he's going to say is because this, is, this sermon is uh, just amazingly theologically rich for this early um, in church history. I mean, this is very early in the, in the, like I said, probably months away from the death of Christ or, or at least his resurrection. Um, this is very early in time. And so the points he's going to make in this, this historical sermon that he preaches are, are very very significant. And so what Stephen's doing with these 53 verses is he's giving a very uh, historical, he's giving a very um, calculated, scriptural defense of his teaching, of his preaching of Christ, of his preaching of even the things that they accused him of. Not blasphemy because they're misunderstanding the truths he's teaching, but um, I think that he is um, teaching... Um, distinctions between the use of the temple in the Old Covenant and the use of the temple now, the use of the, the land of Israel and the use of the land of Israel now, the use of the law in the Old Covenant, the use of the law in the New Testament. He's going to explain these truths, and they, they will find it blasphemous, but he's going to show them from the very history of the people of Israel why this should not be surprising, why they should likewise believe his message, um, because uh, the Old Testament teaches just what he's teaching. And so Stephen is trying to contrast this idea that the Jews had made the temple, Israel, Jerusalem, and, and, uh, specifically, or even the law. They had made these things the end all of God's revelation. They had made these things, you know, to them, this is how you become justified, this is how you relate to God. There's, there was nothing else. There was nothing really else that they thought that they needed and so they had missed what the Old Covenant was saying. The Old Testament itself was saying it was pointing to something else. The Old Testament had always been pointing to something else, more specifically someone else. And that's what they had missed. Um, so as I said, Stephen's going to take them all the way back to the very beginning at Abraham. He's going to begin chapter 7 with Abraham. And he's going to use Abraham, Moses, Joseph, the temple itself, all of these things He's going to use examples from the Old Testament to show them that they should um, believe just as he does. That's what he's going to be doing. For me, um, you know what I really wanted to do with Acts chapter 7? Was I want us to turn to Acts chapter 7 and say, Stephen here gives a uh, historical account of the people of Israel. And then I wanted us to turn to chapter 54, where they, or to verse 54, where they put him to death. The reason I wanted to do that is because I had no clue myself of the significance of this sermon. I thought all, I never had really grasped, I thought he was just giving a history, you know, like, 
I thought he was just trying to relate to the Sanhedrin to show them that he has a high view of the Torah and that he's a Jew. And, you know, that's, that was a very surface-level understanding. But as I, started, as I started studying this chapter, um, he's really making a devastating argument from the Old Covenant. I think that's why so much text is dedicated to this. I think that's why um, this sermon is here. Um, so I want you guys to be able to, in the same way that I did it, I want you to be able to appreciate this sermon I want you to be able to appreciate it. We're, we're, this is really all we're going to cover today. We're not even going to get to chapter 8, but it's okay because this is huge. Um, so let's, let's try to quickly move through chapter 7. Of course, we're just going to hit the highlights, um, but I just want you to see Stephen's argument to the Jewish leaders. I want you to understand what he's saying. So he's before the, he's before the leaders, and Chapter 7, verse 1 says, The high priest said to him, Are these things so? Meaning, are these accusations against you? Are these true? Verse 2, um, Stephen begins, and, it, and he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia Potamia, before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And just as we saw with, with John's teaching in Genesis, there was this promise to Abram, to, to Abraham, of this land that he was going to inherit. The promised land, the land of Israel. And at, just at mentioning this, I'm sure the, the Jews were stirred up and they would have said amen to this. That's, this is why we venerate the land is because of this promise here that God gave to Abraham. This is why... This is why we are the way we are. Uh, but Stephen, look at verse 5. Not so fast, Stephen says in verse, fat, in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, But he gave him, it means God gave Abraham no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. Okay, so God did give Abraham the promise to receive this land and to his descendants. Abraham in his lifetime never even... Um, acquired a foot of the land. Okay, so the point that um, here that Stephen would be making with the example of Abraham is that um, if it was all about the land promise, if it was all about um, receiving this uh, plot of land, then why is it that uh, Father Abraham never even obtained a foot of it, if, if that's what it was all about? Doesn't that seem significant that Father Abraham would have, I mean would have obtained in the way that they thought he would obtain it? Because I do think he will obtain the land, just as Jesus taught, the, the meek will inherit the earth. God's going to fulfill his promise. I'm not saying he doesn't fulfill it, but in the way that um, these Jews uh, looked at these promises as, as if they were the end all, as if this land promise was what it was all about. Um, Abraham never obtained it in his lifetime. And the reason, the reason that did not trouble Abraham, as it would have the Jews, is because just as if you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, the, they call it the Hall of Faith, there we get an explanation by the writer of the Hebrews of the same exact point concerning Abraham. There it talks about how Abraham and Sarah, yes, they were given this promise. Um, they never inherited that promise in the flesh. But it says that Abraham was never um, looking for that land anyways. He was looking for a heavenly land, it says. And, uh, and God says, because of that, what does it say? I have Hebrews 11:16 here. It says, but as it is, they desired a better country. Okay, the end all for Abraham was not the land of Israel. They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's pretty significant in, in any discussion of the land and, and Abraham's view of the land, I think. Um, so that's what Stephen brings forward for the Jews. Father Abraham, um, we just see how a spiritual uh, man of God is to interpret these promises. You know, they're not the end all. These are types and shadows pointing to something else that they would gain, right? That's always what was going on. And I think, let me just say real quick, the reason I never got um, Acts chapter 7 and Stephen's message, I think... Um, is because we don't naturally venerate the land. We don't venerate the old covenant sacrificial systems and the dietary laws and the days. We don't, um, so when, so when um, somebody brings those things up, it doesn't hit us. 
But these Jews, who that was their relationship with God, this affects them. They're feeling the weight of these arguments as when I read through Acts chapter 7, I never felt it. You know, I didn't, what's the big, okay, what's the big deal, I thought. Uh, but that's what, um, that's what Stephen's doing. So, exhibit two now. Um, Stephen's going to begin in verse 9, Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Stephen's going to bring forward the account of Joseph. Joseph, the great patriarch of Israel. Um, Joseph is indeed significant, as we saw um, in John's teaching again in Genesis. The, the, the Torah devotes, Moses devoted 14 chapters to the story of Joseph. Joseph is a significant figure. Um, we know why, because of the significance of the story, the foreshadowing of Christ in his life. Um, but let's see what, what point um, Stephen makes here in verse 9 about Joseph. He says, the patriarchs, is everybody familiar with who the patriarchs are? The, they have the sons of Israel who, who were divided up the land amongst them, and they were the heads of the, the tribes. Um, it says that the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. And so again, it's really the same point um, that, Stephen's making, that Stephen's making. Joseph enjoyed the favor of God, um, he gained wisdom from God, not while worshiping God um, under the Old Covenant in Jerusalem at the temple, um, keeping the Old Covenant, Old Testament laws. Um, Joseph was communing with God in the very pit of what the Jews saw as the land of bondage. Joseph was in Egypt communing with God. And so here I think it's another, um, another argument against their view of the Holy Land against their veneration of the Holy Land. Yes, God gave them the land, and they were, they were in it um, at the time. They were being offended by these things, but the point is, is that's not what it was all about. That's not what it was all about. Um, too many of the fathers of the faith worshipped God outside of that land. That's what Stephen's showing them. And so as if the examples of Abraham and Joseph aren't enough to prove this, um, Stephen moves on to the example of Moses. The example of Moses. Um, so you think, where did God have Moses raised up? Was Moses raised up in the, in the land of Israel, in the, in, the, in the promised land? Where was Moses raised up? Egypt. In Egypt, just as, just as well. In the land of Egypt, again, just to the Israels that was not have set well for them. And so what we're going to see here is, so Moses is raised in Egypt under all of that teaching, all of that, uh, worldview, all that philosophy, all of those gods, uh, but God does begin to send Moses to be the deliverer of Israel, and let's see how the people react to God sending Moses. Verse 22, Moses, it says, was educated in all the learnings of Egypt, and he was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, verse 22. Verse 22. Well, now I'm on 25. So Moses has taken vengeance against this Egyptian who's hurting his brethren, an Israelite. Verse 25 says, And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. Okay? But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? And so here we see is God's um, setting up Moses to defend, really, um, the people of Israel. We, see, we start to see their rejection of him. Verse 35 says, This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in a thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And so Stephen sets up Moses for them. They all know Moses. They would all have understood the story. They would all believe the story. Uh, Moses was set up to be the deliverer um, of the people of Israel. He was going to redeem them from bondage. And he did all of this work while performing signs and wonders. And so that just really sets up already just a, 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 to make you think of anybody else who would come to Israel um, to deliver them performing signs and wonders. And uh, this is just part of the point that Stephen's trying to make, that the Jews are once again missing the day of their visitation. God's sending them a deliverer, and they're going to reject him. They're not going to accept him. Um, what's so ironic about this situation is that eventually the people of Israel do come to submit to Moses, more specifically his law, um, so much to the point that this is their salvation. This is their relationship with God. This is how they um, are made righteous. This is how they're justified by the law of God. They put their trust in it. And so then again, we see in verse 37, um, Stephen's going to do the exact same thing Peter did. He's going to take them back to this, their great prophet Moses and say, remember what Moses said. Um, verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Same point, um, same text, Deuteronomy 18, that Peter used. Um, they're all pointing to this Moses who they put their trust in, saying, um, if you believe Moses so much, if you love Moses so much, why don't you listen to him? Moses was not the end all. Moses spoke of another, right? That's, that's what he's saying. Even Moses, Moses prophesied of Christ. Um, just as Marshall said, Jesus said the same thing in John 5. He said, if you believed Moses, if you truly believed and maybe understood Moses, you would believe me because Moses spoke of me, right? Moses was not the, the end all. All of that um, was about Christ. Last point in the sermon, um, Stephen's going to make the last point, this, this time not pointing to specifically a person really, but he's, he's really going to bring home um, the, the thinking, the idolatry that they had of the temple, um, the temple, the Jews, the, the place the Jews adored, the place the Jews could not imagine having, the place where King David actually um, desired to build. Um, let's, let's read this section just starting in verse 46. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And now he quotes Isaiah 66. He says, this is a quote of the Lord God himself. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Well, what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? And so as I read this, I thought, wow, could Stephen have made any stronger of a point than by quoting the Lord himself of his view of, of the temple? Not that, the that, that God did not come and dwell there, you know, that he did not um, fill with his Shekinah at times, but this could not contain the Lord. This was obviously not a, enough. This could not be the end all because it could not um, contain him. And so again, what's going on here is the Jews are, have, have stopped short of everything God's been trying to do. Everything that God's been trying to point of, or point to, the, the Israel stopped short. They adored the temple. Um, they venerated the city of Jerusalem. They thought the, the Israel was the only place, specifically Jerusalem was the only place that people could worship God, and they put their hope in the law of Moses. And so in all of these things, what, where are they falling short? What are they missing? Why is that not going far enough in the revelation of God? It's kind of an open-ended question. What are they missing in all their religion? They're missing the Messiah. That's what they're missing. They're missing that the Messiah was going to come that would take their iniquities, that the Messiah of Isaiah 53, that would bear their iniquities. That's what, they fall in, that's what they're falling short of. And so I think with, with that sermon, they feel it. We may not feel the weight of those arguments because we don't, like I said, we don't venerate those things that the Old Covenant Jews did. They would have felt the point Stephen was making. And so he's made his point. Now in verse 51, the hammer's going to fall. And now, now he's really going to preach judgment. Verse 51, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And so just to address uh, one thing that he mentions there that's important is how he's, he's um, putting on the people, the leaders of the Jews, the deaths of all the prophets, he says. And he mentions just a few um, examples of the persecution of the prophets, even in the sermon we just read, like with Moses. They rejected Moses. They rejected his teaching. Um, as soon as he tried to go up to the mountain to meet God, his first chance they got, they Aaron, build us a, a calf. We don't know what happened to Moses. I mean, immediately. The entire time he's leading them, through, they're grumbling, complaining, oh, Moses, we would have been better in Egypt without you. I mean, the entire time, just, just persecution. Joseph, we, we saw, um, Joseph was persecuted. Joseph was thrown into a well, left for dead, um, sold into to slavery, which is just as good as, as killing you. Um, by who? Who was it that persecuted Joseph and threw him into prison? His brothers, and who, what is the significance of his brothers? Who are they? They're the patriarchs of the very people of Israel, you know. So, again, the, the significance of these events and, and who these people are are really going to hit home with the Jewish, Jewish leaders. Um, but you know what got them? What got them is verse 53 there, where Stephen had said, You who received the laws ordained by angels yet you did not keep it. After all that teaching, that's what gets them. You did not keep the law. What did they miss? They, well, they missed everything the law was talking about. Yeah, they tried to keep the rules, you know, um, to the T, but they missed the law, and therefore they did not even keep it. Now, as I said, this is what sets them off. Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold. This is interesting. He called out to them. Stephen's standing there. He sees Jesus. He called out to them. Behold, look. I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Of course, they couldn't see it. But they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. Wow. They covered their ears at him seeing Jesus Christ, the, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, the Son of Man from Daniel 7. They covered their ears at, at, this, at the words of this. Um, and they cried out with a loud voice, covering their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so Stephen, in his very last words, um, is given the vision of Christ, is given a vision into heaven, the very throne room of God, where he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. Can you imagine this side of heaven getting the, basically the beatific vision of, of God? Um, that's, that's really amazing. Um, and so, yes, that this man in verse 58, this young man, Saul, who was standing by, giving approval, um, overseeing the stoning, accepting and, and, and managing the, the robes of those witnesses who were stoning um, Stephen. For any who don't know, this, this Saul is the, is the man. This is um, the great Apostle Paul that we're going to read about in the book of Acts. And I can't ever, I mean, it just... Just to, just to think about who we know of as the Apostle Paul, to see him there at that scene, you know, giving hearty approval, it says, is just, that's amazing. That, that's really just an amazing thing. It, it just shows so much, doesn't it? It shows um, the depravity of man that we know the Apostle Paul, we know his heart now anyways, um, but just to see his heart at that point just stone, stone hard, um, and then to see the grace of God change that heart into I mean, there couldn't have been a greater working of the Spirit of God for to go from Saul to Paul, and Paul being probably the greatest Christian that's ever lived. Um, that's, that's really an amazing thing. 
in verse 59 it says, They went on stoning Stephen, and as they did, he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Um, there, it's, it's just interesting to see that as Stephen is, is being stoned, he makes a prayer to the Son of God. He makes a prayer out to, he cries out to Jesus to receive his, his spirit. Um, verse 60 says, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And so that is the account of the first um, New Covenant Christian martyr, Stephen. And uh, I think it's significant, and so I just wanted to point it out again. Notice the last words of his lips there in verse 60. Um, because I think when we read through the sermon and we can see Stephen making his points, getting so worked up, and then we hear the harshness of his accusations against the Jews, you know, you stiff-necked, you know, unbelieving, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. It seems so harsh, and it is harsh, it's true and harsh, um, but you can almost, man, this guy's getting in the flesh with these, these Jewish leaders. You know, the way he's speaking to them, is he in the flesh or what? But I think that's definitely a misguided assumption, because verse 55 reminded us that Stephen is in fact full of the Holy Spirit at that point. Even with the, the harshness, and none of it's untrue, but he's preaching hard. He's preaching the sinfulness of these people um, in his message to the point that they want to kill him. Um, I just think for us, you know, as, as we go out and we do our evangelism and, and we're um, preaching at people and we're preaching a very harsh message, to preach hell is, there's no harsher message you can preach to someone. You know, and I, and I know as even other Christians even assume sometimes as we're preaching just the reality of heaven, hell, eternity, Christ, without Christ, we're, all of these realities, you know, it seems to me like as we're preaching, Christians, maybe well-meaning Christians, just definitely ignorant, I would say, they, they assume that if we're in the flesh and we're preaching at these people, you know, because we hate them. Um, that's not at all the case. Just as obviously it wasn't with Stephen. In the harshness of the reality of his message, Stephen did not hate these people in any way. Um, Stephen, I mean, would, would wish that they would fall down in repentance, I'm sure, at the reality of what they've done, of what their, their fathers have always done, that they would repent and, and accept um, the one who Moses spoke of. So I just thought for us, you know, as we go out and preach, and even just, your, just as you're talking to people and sharing the gospel with them and trying to convince them that they are, in fact, a sinner and need Christ, um, you always want to guard your heart, and I just want to go out and be at the place where I can be just as Stephen, where if those people turn on me, that's going to show you, you know, right then and there where your heart is at. I mean, you're either going to want to rip their heads off, you're going to want to, you know, beat them up, you're going to hope the police come and billy club them, but that's not what Stephen was thinking, full of the Holy Spirit. Even at that point as they were persecuting him, I mean, you just see the rocks are probably hitting him in the face. And he's praying out for God to forgive them. That's the, that's the spirit in which we want to do our evangelism and preach the gospel. It's not going to change our words. Our words are going to be true, and we're going to say the same things Peter did, that Stephen did, that Jesus himself said. We're going to say those words, but we're saying it in hopes that, that God would use it to bring them to repentance, not because we hate them. Right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, it, it even shows his life and his heart for those people that were stoning him, because even as... God mm -hmm. cannot hold this sin against them. Yeah, was that his way of basically, you know, uh, hoping and, you know, basically looking to the Lord to, um, that they would come to repentance and yeah. he would forgive them? Yeah, I think so. I think he was. I mean, while he's being yeah. stoned to death. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Only somebody who's full of the Holy Spirit could. Right. I mean, because just mocking is bad enough. When you're trying to preach and people are making fun of you, it's hard enough to, to remain. Um, with a God-centered view and, and, and to, to keep your theology right because it, it can make you mad. It can make you feel bad and make you, you know, feel like an idiot and your, your natural flesh is going to raise up and, you know, all of a sudden try to make a better argument or make fun of them, you know, by, by their um, rejection of God. But, you know, that's not where we want to be. You know, it's just, it just hit home for me. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you, um, when, when he was preaching, mm -hmm. It's like, um, I mean, he's just preaching the truth. 
Yeah. And you know, to 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 those who refuse to believe, mm-hmm. you know, the truth hurts. Yeah. And it, and it, and it's to the point where, yeah, they get so you get so angry that uh, you want to do something to that person that that is preaching, you know. Yeah. And that's what they had in their heart. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but with the love, just like she was saying, with the love that that uh, just like the love that Jesus had mm-hmm. when they uh, crucified him, mm-hmm. he said, "He said, Lord, forgive them." You know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Stephen had the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he felt the same way. Yeah. yeah. He said, "Don't hold this against him." Yeah, that's an amazing thing to say when you're getting stoned. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Stephen preached the truth, no doubt. I mean, he told them exactly, exactly how it was, but he did it with compassion, and uh, he did it wanting them definitely to repent. I think, um, as you know, as Christians, and it's definitely a maturity level as well as we grow sanctification and being able to um, take all those hard hits. You know, uh-huh. I definitely learned that, and you know, God was spiritually growing me in, uh, to more of a mature level, you know, by His grace, but also I think, you know, we have to remind ourselves, like, to carry this balance. Mm-hmm. When we do get those um, harsh, you know, uh, responses, and um, there's a balance that there's this part that you want to say um, they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're so blinded by the enemy. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other part, and I think sometimes even Christians that respond back in in an ungodly manner that you know, of course, the Lord wouldn't want to do, mm-hmm. is that we're so we're weighted so much on this side. Of you know, what's your fault? You know, you're you're an idiot. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. uh, you're getting what you deserve. Right. You know, how dare you respond to this truth? So we have to carry that balance. There's this part that you just your heart cries out for them because to a certain degree, yes, they're ignorant, but yet on the other hand, they know that <coughs> God exists. They know because the, God has written His law in every man's heart. So they're without excuse. Yeah. You have to carry yeah. that balance. And you have to carry with you the the theology and the understanding that you were no different than they were. Right. That's what we, I mean, maybe we go out forgetting that. And go back to the Apostle Paul. That always yeah. brings me back to the Apostle Paul, and that still gives you that hope. Like yeah. Someone like Apostle Paul could be so uh, just miraculously changed. I mean, yeah. from that to this, and then that gives you that hope for others. Yeah. For sure. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go to worship. Let me just let me just pray, and let's, let's go, because it's, it's time. Well, Father... Father, I thank you for giving us your word, God, and I thank you that um, just you give us just so much time to study, God. You give us a church that has a high view of your word, Father. I just thank you again for revealing yourself to us as you have, God, and, and bringing our families, God, in your grace into this church, Father. And we cannot thank you enough, Father. So I, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. I pray that uh, you would fill Pastor Emilio with your spirit, God, that in and all the truth, God, it would be effectual to your church, Father, that we would have unity, having all have heard your voice together in the same room, God, I pray it would bring unity in our church, that we would all worship you with the same, um, same heart and same mind, Father, we ask for your blessing, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.